You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Sonder Daniels is the founder of Thumbtack, the modern home management platform. Millions of households in the U.S. use the Thumbtack platform to manage their home, and Thumbtack helps hundreds of thousands of local service professionals across 500 occupations grow sustainably. They have raised over $500 million in capital, nearly 1,000 employees, and millions of customers. Sonner has recently founded Scale, the recruiting startup focused initially on connecting great people, legal, and finance talent to top startups, and started Groom Buggy, a mobile dog grooming business in the San Francisco Bay Area. I think you'll enjoy this one, so please stay tuned. Bender, welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Miles, for having me. Appreciate it. So let's jump right in. I'm curious, is starting a tech company or going into politics or policy a better place to make a difference? What a great question. Well, maybe before diving into that, I can back up a little bit. So I grew up in the DC area from an early age. I felt lucky about the opportunities I've been given. It was nothing super out of the ordinary. I thought when I get a little bit older, though, maybe I can pay it forward, create opportunities for others. So the first direction that took me was in college. In addition to engineering, I studied history, politics, philosophy. I followed that up. I went to law school. I thought I was going to be in DC doing political work my whole career. While I was in law school, I kept in touch with a couple of friends who had gone a similar direction for similar motivations. They were working at the White House at the time. And we said, well, Politics is one way to make a difference, but there's another way, which is technology. So for a year, we had weekly phone calls where we brainstormed ideas of things we could start that were successful, would create opportunity for people. And that's where we landed on Thumbtack. Politics or technology? You know, I thought I was going to be in politics. I ended up in technology. I am happy, I will say, with where I ended up because technology, I think, is positive sum politics can be a little bit more zero-sum. That said, now that I've been in technology for more than a decade, I'm hungering to get back into public policy because you can have such a big impact at enormous scale in public policy and politics. Can you explain more about the differences that make it zero or non-zero-sum? So I think the cultures in DC and Silicon Valley reflect those differences a little bit. DC, you know, that's you, you have to choose a side and it's hard to change your mind or you can change your mind, but then you suffer in your reputation because you're changing your mind based on new evidence, can't switch teams. It's a very team-based sport in that way. Silicon Valley tech, there's this kind of positive sum mindset where people really do try to help each other out over the course of time. It's a long game. You're in it for a long career. You know, if you're at one company today, maybe you're at another company tomorrow. You want to treat people well just because you, your, your team at your startup is winning doesn't mean others can't win. Um, and in fact, we've gotten to know competitors very well over the course of time at the different companies I've been at. 
and built great relationships with them. And so it just feels like a very different, very different mindset and outlook in many ways. And the one in Silicon Valley is, is the one I've, I've chosen and, and enjoy a little bit more, I think. <laughs> yeah. And you think you want to get involved back in policy. Anything you can share there? There's a few things. So what motivates me is making an impact. And for me, the way I believe I can make the most impact is creating economic opportunity for people creating jobs for folks, connecting people to jobs, training people into jobs for the modern economy. I am proud of the work that we did at Thumbtack to create opportunities for folks. Thumbtack is a marketplace for local services. It's a platform to manage your home. And so we have millions of consumers, homeowners across the US that use Thumbtack to hire local service pros. And we have hundreds of thousands of local service pros on the other side of the marketplace to do this work. We're proud of the work that we do to put the money, put money in the pockets of small businesses. In a time when in certain ways tech is eroding a path to a middle class career for folks, we feel like at Thumbtack we're really helping rebuild that path for certain folks. The jobs that are done on Thumbtack, these are not small-time gigs. These are big jobs done by skilled tradespeople with, in certain cases, decades of career in their crafts. I think the average job value on Thumbtack is $750, $850. So again, these are not small-time jobs. And at Thumbtack, we started it in order to make an impact on people's lives. And that's what has motivated me. It was what motivated me to be there for 12, 13 years. And it's what continues to motivate me in what I'm doing after Thumbtack. I want to keep doing things that create jobs for folks, that connect people to jobs, train people into jobs in the modern economy. I've already started a couple things related to that, but I want to keep doing it. And some high-level things I'm thinking about, particularly as it relates to public policy, are the state of trade schools and community colleges. I I'm a big believer that community colleges and trade schools have been neglected culturally over the last many decades in favor of four-year degrees. Great for certain people, but not great for many people. And so all these things around the future of work, around retraining folks for the modern economy, around getting people into uh, schools and trades that work for them where they are in their life. These are things that really interest me and I want to do a lot of work on. That sounds exciting. You said when you were growing up, you had the recognition that you wanted to pay it forward. Do you have specific memories of how you came to that realization? Absolutely. A lot of it came from my parents. So I'm, I'm very lucky to have a couple, couple great parents and their careers influenced me heavily. So on the one hand, my dad was in tech his whole career in uh, the DC area. And so I learned a lot about him, about the value of ownership, creating jobs, technology on the world. And then on the other hand, my mom was in international development for her career. So she worked at a contractor for the US Agency for International Development. And as part of her work, she traveled all around the world all the time while I was a kid. And in some of those cases, I even got to tag along with her. So when I was eight, nine, 12, 13 years old, I was headed to places like Ghana, Uganda, Zambia, Zimbabwe, India. And those trips really shaped my future in a big way because it showed me that, oh my gosh, not everybody lives the way I do. And both my parents and those trips in particular instilled in me a real sense of responsibility to pay it forward. I thought, gosh, through no hard work of my own, have I landed here, born in the United States with 
opportunity at my fingertips. That was random chance and luck. I could have been born anywhere without similar opportunities. And it's unfair that people are born with very different opportunity sets just based on random luck. And so I'm going to do what I can to kind of level the playing field and create opportunity in other places where I can. So you followed your parents' guidance in wanting to pay it forward, but did you listen to them in terms of going into a startup? <laughs> like I said, I was following a pretty standard set path for a lot of my, the early part of my education and career. I was getting the good grades from high school. I applied to a great college. From college, I got good grades, went to great law school, thought I was going to be in D.C., kind of on that standard political track. But then somehow I got in this conversation with some friends, like I mentioned about starting a new company. I had never imagined I would start a new company. I had never imagined I would be an entrepreneur. I had no idea how you even begin to start a new company. Like what's the first step? Where do you go to incorporate? What does that even mean? I really kind of stumbled into it. But part of what I did during that period was I followed what brought me energy. And there were certain cases where the things that brought me energy were, were kind of unusual. I majored in undergrad in environmental engineering and international studies. There was no like real calculus behind that. These were things that just happened to bring me energy at the time. And so in a similar way, these conversations with my friends about starting something new brought me a lot of energy. Turns out that following my energy led to great things because the things that I was excited by and brought me energy, turns out I would dig most deeply into them and I would work hardest on. And so when we started talking about this company, I got really excited about it. After law school, I went to a law firm in DC. I was married. I had a kid. I couldn't go to a startup right away because I needed an income. Uh, the other guys, they didn't need an income. They didn't have families yet. They were living together in a townhouse here in San Francisco. I couldn't do that with my family. So I needed an income. So during the days, I worked at the law firm at nights and on the weekends. I was our first customer service rep at Thumbtack, working remotely at Thumbtack. And when I started talking to my parents about this Thumbtack thing, they didn't think it was such a great idea. They said, why would you leave this incredible, prestigious law firm earning $160,000 a year, which was the amount that a first-year associate at the law firm made at the time, and instead go take your whole family away from all of us to the other side of the country to do this crazy thing that's never going to work. And I had to agree with them. I was 98% confident that this was never going to work. But I thought to myself, well, I'm going to really regret it if I don't at least give it a shot. I told my wife, hey, we'll be back in DC in nine or 12 months when this thing fails. Don't worry about it. So it was a big decision to go out there. People kind of thought we were crazy. And then Thumbtack kept not failing. So here we are 12, 13 years later. So no, I did not end up following my parents' advice, but all's well that ends well, I suppose. Well, here's to continuing to not fail. That sounds <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> I'm curious if there were any practices you used or advice you could give to someone who's thinking about quitting their job, but feeling like they need to save up a little bit more money. I could see how that could become an ongoing, oops, I'm now working here five years. I'm now way past when I thought I would stay. But you actually left. And I'm wondering, what was it? Was it a pull, a push? What practices, what advice would you have? A couple things I'll say. First, in every career transition I've had, there have been, it's, it's never been clean cut from the first thing to the next thing. 
Instead, it's truly that a transition. And so there are periods where I was, you know, starting to think in the back of my mind while at one place about the next thing. I was starting to talk to friends. I was starting to write in Google Docs for these days notion about my ideas and get feedback about my ideas from friends, starting to talk to people, even incorporating something new, getting Slack up and running, a, a domain, these types of things you can start while you're somewhere and still earn an income and not take too much risk and leave immediately for the next thing. So that's, that's one idea. These transitions are very common and, and happen that way. Another practice I've had is to set very clear kind of metrics and guideposts for myself. For example, when I was at the law firm in DC, the day I started in November, 2009, I put a note on my refrigerator that said, you will leave Sullivan and Cromwell, which is the name of the law firm by January 31st, 2011. That is the amount of time I calculated that I needed to save up enough money in order to then go another 18, 24 months with little or no income. And so that's what exactly what I did. I worked there for 14 months. I did great work while I was there and I gave it my all. And then the last week of January of 2011 happened to be the same week that my first kid was born. I left Solomon and Cromwell. And similarly, as I was transitioning out of Thumbtack 10, 12 years later, I, for my new things I've started, have set very clear guideposts for myself. Hey, if we haven't reached product market fit by month 18, or we haven't reached profitability by month 24, or whatever it is, then those are, are signals to me that maybe it's not quite going the way I wanted it to. Maybe I'm taking a little bit more risk than I wanted to. These things, they're not cut and dry. They're guideposts you set for yourself. So you can look back on what you drafted 6, 12, 24 months ago and hold yourself accountable to your prior expectations and know that at least given your prior expectations, you're meeting, not meeting, exceeding those. And you can then continue to chart your path forward based on that. Thank you for that. You mentioned that you've started a couple new things and you talked about the ideation process for Thumbtack. Aside from the overall mission of creating opportunity, what are the criteria you use for deciding if you want to start something? So I am much less structured about this than many other people. I I think so. A lot of people, they use these frameworks like, oh, you have to go after a huge market. You have to have a personal, have faced a personal connection to the problem that you're trying to solve. That's frankly not the framework I've used. Instead, my approach is very much shaped by the belief that there are many fewer great builders out there in the world than there are problems to be solved. And if a great builder applies himself or herself to a problem that the world faces, kind of regardless of what the problem is, they're going to be able to make great progress and navigate over the course of time to solving a big part of the problem. So the next couple of things I've started, you know, one is a recruiting company and it started very small. We just put up, a, a incorporated as an LLC, started hiring a few folks onto the team. We didn't really have a clear thesis about what we were building, but lo and behold, now that we're 18 months into it, huh, we've really developed a much clearer thesis about what we're building. We have gotten to know a lot of what's worked and what hasn't worked in the recruiting space previously. We've developed a great early product where 
we're, we found product market fit. Okay, we're going to really dial in that product, make it truly excellent. And then we're going to build on top of it over the course of time. Similarly, another business I've started was with my best friend from high school who had also been with me at Thumbtack for a decade. He and I, we weren't optimizing for a specific problem to solve. Instead, we said, Cash, wouldn't it be great to work together for another decade? Let's do it again. And oh, by the way, this time we want to build family business, a small business in our community that we can employ anybody who needs a job, that we can sponsor the local soccer team. And oh, by the way, we have this expertise in marketing local services. So perhaps we should go build one of these local services businesses ourselves. So what we were optimizing there was more who we work with and and the general type of business, a local family business, it was not really the problem to solve. We ended up after a period of three, four months of exploration, talking to a bunch of local tradespeople, we ended up in mobile dog grooming. This is a classic example for me of something I do not have any personal experience with. I am not a pet owner myself, but hey, it turns out with a couple great operators behind the business, we're able to go build something really interesting and Although we were previously thinking this was just going to be, you know, a small local community business, I think it has a big opportunity. Turns out the pet industry is way huger than I ever imagined. And the demand for mobile dog grooming in the United States vastly outstrips the supply of talented groomers that are uh, able to do it. And so this is just a huge opportunity. So it's another example of starting something new. I think people oftentimes overthink it. And if you, it's kind of almost regardless of the problem you choose, if you just put up a shingle and you start building relentlessly day after day with a good small team, you'll be able to roll that snowball into something huge over the course of time. So that's kind of the approach I've taken to entrepreneurship. Wow. So inspiring. Get started. Do it. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I've long said that startups are like a bicycle or a boat. You know, you can't steer it unless you're in motion. And I think that's a bit of what you're talking about. I couldn't agree more. I think people overthink the beginning. They overthink the market they're entering and they definitely overthink their initial product that they're building. Honestly, there's just a huge activation energy you have to get over to start something. Like I said, it's those seemingly small things, getting your business license registered, setting up Notion, getting a domain, setting up Gmail, setting up Slack, all great things start from a shared Google Doc. And if you just start and keep at it day after day, you'll be able to build something interesting, something great potentially. Very exciting. As you Think about that execution, focus, relentlessness that you've talked about. How do you balance the work, the focus with experimenting and learning? The way I think about it is you can't be great at something unless you focus narrowly. Too many people, I think, take their eye off the ball. They get excited about the next shiny object. They change their path based on the latest interesting conversation they had with somebody. You need to have a core thesis that you do a good job testing in the market. And so to me, it takes six to nine months, six to nine months or so to really do a good job testing something in the market. You need to give your idea and your thesis a good shot and not parallelize things too much, not have too many things going on at the same time, go deep in one direction. And then if it works, great. Like dial that in for a year or a year and a half or two years and make it great. And then, you know, by month 18 or so, 
you have a core product set up, something that's working, then it's time to think about, all right, what could I add on to this? Maybe if before I was spending 100% of my time on this core product, now I can spend 80% of my time on it and allocate 20% of my time or my team's resources to building something new and ideating on something new. My view on this is shaped heavily by our experience at Thumbtack. We were world-class sequencers and focusers. We had a million things we could have been distracted by over the course of time. We had investors encourage us to get distracted. We had all kinds of people, all kinds of shiny objects we could have gone after. We said nothing is more important than building the core marketplace. How do you match demand with supply in a truly efficient, delightful way that makes for a great product? And that didn't take us just six or nine months. That took us six or nine years for almost a decade. We spent our time on nothing but this core problem of how do you match demand with supply efficiently? And then it was only, no, nobody had built that great product for local services. And it was only by year eight, nine, 10 that we had truly built a great product. It was driving high NPS, high repeat, turn, direct, word of mouth traffic. And then it was at that point where we finally were able to lift our heads up and say, okay, now in our annual planning processes, instead of devoting 100% of the team's resources to the core marketplace. Now we'll devote 80% of our team's resources to it. There's still lots of opportunity to build and improve that core, but instead we'll devote 20% of the team's resources to thinking about things we'd always dreamed we'd be able to build on top of the core marketplace. And so that's what we've been doing now over the last two, three years. It's the place we'd always hoped and dreamed we would get to, and we finally gotten there. Well, congratulations on your growth and success. One of the things I've been curious about, about the Thumbtack story is I think you were pretty early in having a globally distributed team. And I'm curious how you decided to do that and how you got good at it. We had a globally distributed team from the very early days in 2010, 2011. The way it came about is we had people starting to sign up on the marketplace and in particular service professionals. So we would have plumbers, electricians, math tutors signing up on the marketplace and they would list their business. They would write the title of their service. They would write a big description. Well, turns out when we had people starting to write their service, they were great at their trade, but they weren't necessarily the best at drafting concise summaries of what they did in their business. So that some people would use all caps. Some people would write all kinds of crazy things or, or uh, not the best grammar in their service description. And so we started editing the listings ourselves, but then more and more people started signing up and we said, well, there's probably other people who are better equipped to edit these listings at scale than us. So we put a job ad up on Odesk at the time, as it was called, and we talked to a bunch of people who could edit job descriptions. The four finalists, two were in the US, two happened to be in the Philippines, and we ran them through tests. One of the folks in the Philippines happened to not just be most enthusiastic about the role, but have better grammar than anybody else who had applied. So we hired her and we started building a team around her. Fast forward six years, and the first person that we hired on Odesk ended up managing a team of five hundred folks in the Philippines who were all completely distributed across the hundreds of islands in the Philippines. And this was a huge innovation. A lot of people 
think about innovation and tech and other businesses, pure, deep tech innovation, that's not my experience. Some of that certainly exists, but in so many cases, the innovation that truly happens is marketing innovation or operational innovation. And for us, building that remote team in the Philippines do operations at scale for us in our marketplace was an incredible innovation that nobody else had done and was a central way that allowed Thumbtack to manage our marketplace at scale and grow it in a cost-effective way that, that nobody else did. Thumbtack wouldn't exist today, but for that incredible innovation in the early days. Amazing story that your very first person ended up running such a large team. Yeah. That's really cool. As you were growing the company, you brought in an executive coach. Do you have any advice on how to pick the right coach for you? Well, for the first four or five years of Thumbtack's life, we were wandering in the wilderness. Nobody had paid much attention to us. It was a handful of many of us living in a townhouse in San Francisco in a neighborhood called the Castro. We had raised three or four million dollars. We almost ran out of money trying to raise our first venture capital round. Not a lot of people were super interested in us. We, had, we didn't have a great track record. Then all of the things, all of a sudden, about four or five years in, things really started clicking. We built the supply in the marketplace. We built the demand in the marketplace. We built a revenue model on top of it. And suddenly, after nobody had paid any attention to us, and we had raised that amount of money for, for that period. Then in 20, 2013, all of those things came together and we ended up raising a series B round from Sequoia. And for the next 18 months, we went on to raise $150 million and suddenly everybody was paying attention. Then six months after that, our series C investors at Tiger Global, they came to us founders and they said, well, congratulations, now it's time to grow up. And for us, that meant a couple things. The first was to hire an exec team that was way more experienced than us across to lead all, all our departments. So for the next year or two, we spent a lot of time recruiting VP ops, VP eng, VP design, VP people, on and on. And then the second component of that was hiring an exec coach for us. So we went out and we ended up hiring an exec coaching team first for the founders later that supported the whole leadership team and using that exec coach was one of the most transformative experiences of my entire life what they did they came in and they had a 150 instrument survey all about how you operate and they said hey give us the names of 8 10 12 people in the world close to you we're going to take those names we're going to send them this survey and we're going to learn a little bit about how you operate so they did that i gave them the names these people took the survey about how i work they got the results the coaches brought me into a room and if i were ever previously under any illusions about what i was good and not good at then they were entirely those illusions were entirely shattered during that meeting i learned so much about myself it was really the first time i was able to step back get good feedback in an objective way about what my strengths and weaknesses were. It was the first time I really was able to internalize the fact that I am not perfect. I can't do everything. There are people on my team who are better than me, draw more energy than me at certain critical components of the business. And similarly, I'm, I have my zone of genius and I draw my energy in certain parts of the business that other people don't. And so Maybe we should work together to slot in the founders into areas that really leverage their zones of genius and allow them to hand off parts of things they're managing that don't excite them as much 
to other people. Whereas before I would say kind of us founders and parts leaders team, we, we kind of had this, I would say, early career, immature type feeling that, oh, we can each do it all, which would create tension around who owns what and, you know, why, why, why aren't you doing it this way in the way that I would do it? After hiring an exec coach, those conversations became much easier. We had a framework in which we could have critical conversations. We could all openly acknowledge with each other our strengths, our weaknesses, and then make sure that we were all working on things that we were good at and brought us energy and that we could fill in and pinch hit for each other on the things where we could offer help. So it was really a transformative experience. There are many different types of coaches to your question. That first type of coach was a very much kind of like strategic consulting coach. There have been other coaches we've had. One coach in particular was kind of like an armchair therapist type coach. There's a third coach who I worked with for 18 months who, who was fantastic and was a productivity and relationship management at scale coach. So it's kind of like how as a leader, do you operate extremely efficiently? Let's work with your executive assistant to build all kinds of crazy tools, systems, processes that give you leverage in your day and allow you to build relationships with people on your team at scale. And after all this success, how do you decide to leave Thumbtack? Well, I'm a builder and operator at Art. I had changed roles at Thumbtack every 18 or 24 months. I would start new parts of the business from ground zero that the team knew would become critical parts of business. I would work on them and build them for a year or two with the goal of setting it up initially and then handing it off to somebody who could scale. And so I did that, you know, five, six, seven times at Thumbtack over the course of about 12 years. And then ultimately it got point where I said, hey, as much as I love Thumbtack, I really, it's gotten to a scale where it's harder for me to build and spin up things from scratch. So I'm going to stay involved at Thumbtack, which I am. I still spend 10% of my time there. Still has an incredible opportunity ahead of it to continue making enormous impact, but I'm going to start spinning up new things. And so Thumbtack was my first decade. What's my next decade going to be? I did some reflection. I read a book and followed its exercises religiously. It's a book called Designing Your Life for about three months. Highly recommend it to anybody going through a period of transition in their life. And what I came out of that saying is, okay, if Thumbtack was my first decade, then for the next decade, what I want to do is a couple things. First, I want to continue creating economic opportunity for folks. Second, I want to build things from zero to one. So maybe for my next decade, I'll build one or two new companies every two or three years. And that's what I've started doing. Sounds exciting. Is there anything that you would change about Silicon Valley mindset? My view is that the Silicon Valley mindset is a wonderful, incredible source of innovation in the world. I love being immersed in it. It matches my optimistic personality very well. People who are out there building new things, I give incredible respect. One thing I think that's missing though is this attention towards public service, public policy, the national interest, local communities. So much of tech operates at this like fully globalized, supranational plane. And though that has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, 
over the course of the last couple decades. So had an incredibly positive impact on the world. I think there's a huge opportunity for tech to kind of like get back to the ground roots to connect itself much more with Washington, D.C., with politics, with local communities, and figure out how tech can really connect itself much more to like the American national interest, to creating jobs in the United States, to rebuilding local communities across the country that have been hollowed out by tech and offshoring in many ways, to helping train folks into skills, to thinking about how can we de-atomize the, the world of the last couple decades. These are questions that I think Silicon Valley does not grapple enough with, and it should. That's a great call to all of us. Any more specific advice for early stage entrepreneurs? Number one most important thing to starting a company is starting the company. You just got to get out there and do it. People psych themselves out a whole lot. People worry about the problem they're going after. They end up doing lots of market research. They build the deck. You're not going to know what to build until you get out there in the market and you actually start building with a small team. And so my number one advice is just to, just to, just to do it. Live with a regret minimization mindset. If you really want to go do it, take a crazy risk, take a crazy leap and figure out how to make it work for yourself. Time box yourself so that you don't take unnecessary risk, say, I'm going to do this for 12 or 18 months or whatever. Worst case scenario, I can go back to the job I previously had and earn an income, but you just got to do it. People psych themselves out. Go do it. Make it happen. Go do it. Make it happen. Thank you so much <laughs> for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Is there any way people can follow you online? Yeah, I publish a Substack, so you can find me on Substack. I'm on Twitter at Sandra Daniels. I'm on LinkedIn. So those are the main places you can find me. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Miles. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.